What's going on, guys? Welcome to episode 22 of Calling All Crab Beers. I am Luke. I am your host. Welcome to the show on this uh, stormy Saturday evening in South Florida. So, we are opening today's show with Straight Up Brews. Talking about the uh, last few brews that I've been able to enjoy over the last couple days. Not a brew forward week. Um, I was good. I stayed away from beer this week trying to get back on tra- track health-wise. But I did make a trip out to Total Wine um, yesterday. <clears throat> and what was cool about that, partially, forgive me guys, because my goal was to get both Andrew um, and another gentleman that I owe a, a beer bomb to get their their packages out, excuse me, on by Tuesday. But Funky Buddha had a release this past weekend, and they when I actually went to it, but they didn't have any bottles available on site, they said that they would be released at local retailers this week. So it was my goal to make sure that I got at least one of each of those for these two guys. And um, I did that just I did just that. And some for myself at uh, Total Wine this weekend. But I picked up a little, you know, just a little bomb of some newer stuff for myself that they had going on. So let's start off. The very first brew that I that I treated myself to with this group that I picked up from Total Wine was Lakeshore Fog from Southern Tier. Now, this is a New England style IPA, 6.8% ABV. And this beer was full on absolutely 100% sink water. <laughs> um, it. I made a post on Crap Brew Junkies that this was 0.019% away from being a drain pour, and had I not paid $4 for the damn can of beer, I honestly would have drain poured it, but it was just nothing. I mean, it just had very little flavor, slight touch of grapefruit maybe. It was a you know very light yellow haze. And it just wasn't good. And I don't know if it was old. I didn't. I actually didn't even look at the date on the can to see. Um, but it was not. It just wasn't enjoyable. It was, you know, it was like drinking Kool Aid that hasn't that doesn't have enough sugar. <laughs> you know, it was just not a good beer altogether. I was absolutely bummed by that one. I actually did pick up another brew from Southern Tier, their Nitro S'mores Imperial Stout, which I have yet to actually crack into, so I'm hoping that that one makes up for the Southern Tier journey on this particular beer run, but I was, uh, yeah, I was bummed about that. That was just not what I was looking for. Second one on the list was I dove into the second release of uh, Funky Buddha's Mixologist series, which is their Margarita Goes. This is an 11% ABV you know, margarita style, um, goes and it was, it was good. I mean, you know, I will say this, that I think that I liked the Manhattan Rye a little bit better. Um, the Manhattan Rye was like 12.6%. So a little bit more boozy. And I don't, the only reason I would say that I liked the Manhattan Rye a little bit better is because it actually mimicked the cocktail versus the margarita goes to me. It was very agave forward. Um, did have a little saltiness to it with a mild tartness, but there was no lime flavor whatsoever. So it it lacked that margarita mimicking characteristic that the that the Manhattan Rye had. Manhattan Rye actually tastes like a Manhattan. The margarita goes did not, in my opinion. So I didn't really taste get a whole lot of tequila or anything like that in there. You know, the agave essence, you know, gives it a little bit of a tequila flavor, but it wasn't, you know, missing without that lime characteristic, it kind of just missed the mark. 
but it was still very good beer, 11% ABV, like I said. I rated it a 4.01 on tapped. I actually rated the Southern Tier Lakeshore Fog previous beer a 2.5 out of 5. Um, I really wish I, I, looking back at it now, I probably should have just rated it like a 0.5 because it was that bad. But I rated it before I had actually drank the whole beer. And just as time progressed, it just got worse and worse and worse. So um, then moving on to, those were the two that I had yesterday. And then today, I started a little bit early today. And my the very first one that I grabbed today was Two Roads Brewing, Too Juicy, which is a double IPA, New England style, you know, a hazy style double IPA. Light, sweet, smooth, easy drinking, very crushable. Um, it was not my favorite New England style IPA out there. It was, you know, it was not my favorite hazy. It definitely lacked the tropical juiciness of a true New England style IPA. It was a little bit like grapefruit forward. It kind of had that like citrus bitterness to it, which was a good thing, but it was not what I was expecting. So it's very different to not like a brew and to not get what, what was expected. And I just didn't get what was expected in this. I liked the brew. It was actually a very good beer, 8.2% ABV. I rated a 3.75 out of 5 on untapped. Would definitely encourage those of you that are into grapefruit, you know, those particular those types of flavors. If you are a fan of like a grapefruit sculpin from um, Ballast Point, then I would definitely encourage you to pick up the uh, Too Juicy from Two, Two Roads Brewing. Good brew overall. It just wasn't what I expected. The way that they presented on the can was like this juicy, hazy IPA. And I kind of expected a little bit more tropical essence to it and that it did not deliver on. So then we go into Clown Shoes, Cam the Conqueror, which is a triple IPA from Clown Shoes, 10% ABV. Um, this one I rated a 3.5 out of 5 on Untapped. It was not a bad beer, but for a triple IPA, it just lacked that hoppy bite that I'm looking for or that triple IPA-esque push, you know, that most of us, most of us, we drink a 11% ABV or 10% ABV beer. We're looking for a bite. We're looking for a snap. We're looking for something to give us a hint that it is what it is. And this was very, very malt forward. It was just, it was very smooth, easy to drink, which was a good thing, but it didn't have any hint of being a triple IPA. It was just very malty you know, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it almost reminded me, the. it was so malt forward that it almost reminded me of like an amber bock or like something like that, that like an amber beer versus an IPA. It just didn't have that snap or that bite to it that would give it an IPA characteristic in my opinion. You know, so I rated it a 3.5 out of 5. I still enjoyed the beer. It just, again, it was another one that was not a bad beer, but it wasn't what I was expecting when I cracked the can. So, that's why my rating was probably a little bit lower than some others because I it is it is rated at somewhere around an average of like 3.89 or something like that and I rated it 3.5 and now as the show is going on here I'm actually drinking a coconut macaroons from the brewery the bakery and this thing is just sheer fire you know um, very coconutty it has a like a it has a what's the word I'm looking for like a silkiness to it that gives it a little bit of depth and a little bit of thickness that makes it taste buttery if that makes any sense so um, very very good beer this one's a 13% ABV Imperial Stout from the brewery and um, 
I'm loving it. You know, this was actually one that I've been dying to get my hands on for a while. I've actually had it on tap before at a world of beer a while back in, um, up in Orlando. And, <clears throat> but I don't remember. And I actually didn't, um, I didn't rate it back then for whatever reason. I think that was one of those nights that I was just stressed out and I had just gotten back to work at a previous job right after I lost my job in September. And I was like, I think I had like six beers that night and I was wasted <laughs> and, um, all stress related. And I just didn't rate it. And then when I woke up in the morning, I didn't feel that I remembered the truth and character of the beer enough to actually give it a rating. So I let it go. And I've been trying to get my hands on a can of it ever since they had it at the craft brew cartel. And they only had about 12 cans. And by the time I got there, which was like three days after they announced it, it was gone. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, when I got to Total Wine and saw it. Now, this is a very expensive beer. We're talking Total Wine here in South Florida has this for $11.99 a can, which for a 13% ABV, 16 ounce can, Imperial Stout, I guess is not terrible, but it was, uh, but it's expensive. I mean, one beer, you know, 12 bucks for a single beer is a lot of money when it's not something like a 22 ounce bottle or something like that. Um, But it was worth it. Very coconutty. You know, just has that nice uh, pastry-esque, you know, finish to it. That nice thickness that just gives it a good body and gives it a, um, just a, uh, not a milkiness. It's just almost like a cakiness. It's, it's just so good. I'm really enjoying it. And it's cold right now. So as it warms up, I'm sure it'll get even better. But let's get into talking about this week. And just kind of some of the craziness has been going on in the United States. So, you know, <clears throat> um, one of the things I got, one of the cool things, I got a new tattoo. So, you know, obviously I talked a little bit about my old tattoo or not my old tattoo, but the one that I, the other one that I've gotten previously, which was the, the cross that's actually made out of the thorns or the spikes that were used to nail Jesus to the cross. And then the runner across the front of my arm that says Philippians 4.13, which is my favorite Bible Bible verse, which says, you know, um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And this addition to the sleeve is a sacred heart of Jesus. So the cool thing about the sacred heart is sacred heart has been a traditional flash style tattoo for years. I mean, people were getting sacred hearts like way back in like the fifties and it was a traditional piece of flash art, which flash art is like the art when you walk into a tattoo studio and you see that like traditional art that they ha a lot of them hang on the walls, that's considered flash. And a lot of the old school tattoo artists back in the day would do flash art <clears throat> and they would, they would hang it in frames around their, around their tattoo studio. And when you walked in, a lot of people would just look at the walls and pick one they wanted and get that tattoo done. Now mine is a little bit different. It's an updated kind of a modern, more modernized version you know, it is the heart with the cross and the smoke from the top and a flame. And then it also has the crown of thorns, two roses, and then it shows the, the heart being pierced with sun rays coming off of it. And ultimately what the sacred heart means is the symbol of Jesus's love and sacrifice for us. And uh, just a pretty awesome addition to the already, you know, religious centered, Christ centered piece that I have going on on my right arm, which will finish out with all biblical references um, on that side. So it's pretty cool. I'm excited. Really, really enjoying it. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of my other tattoos. So 
I actually have a dragon sitting on top of a skull rock that I on my left upper arm, which I got when I was 19 years old. And that was actually my third tattoo. I drove up to the International Tattoo, tattoo Convention in New York City in 1999. I waited in line for about four hours for an artist from San Francisco named Freddie Corbin to give me this tattoo. And um, it was, at the time when I received the tattoo, it was incredible. I paid 400 bucks for this tattoo. It's about the size of... Eh, it's about the size of a closed fist. It's not huge. It's not really big. But when I first got the tattoo, I mean, people were in awe over it. They were like, they couldn't believe how detailed it was. They couldn't believe how amazing it looked. They couldn't believe. And and I'm a very fair-skinned person, so I don't go in the sun a lot. And, you know, I try, I, even though I live in South Florida, when I do go in the sun, I'm usually covered or lathered in sunblock. So this tattoo's not been exposed to a lot of sun or things like that. But it is incredibly faded to the point that when people have seen it to this day, a lot of people will mistake it and say, oh, it looks like a a pumpkin. And it's just embarrassing. And I've toyed with the possibility of heading out to San Francisco to Freddie Corbin's studio and having him redo the tattoo or cover the tattoo with something else from him so that I don't lose the uniqueness of having a Freddie Corbin tattoo. man, that's good. So, but when I really look at it, I actually reached out to him not too long ago. And I was actually surprised at the fact that he was not as expensive as I thought he was going to be. But when you really compile everything and you say, okay, the flight to San Francisco hotel, going to see the guy, the potential of it having to be more than one sitting. And I'm not going to go there sit with them for one day, then fly home and have to go back another time. I'm going to get it done. So if I have to be there for three days to get it all done, I got to be there for three days, whatever it is, it's got to, I've got to get it taken care of. So I, the history of it and the fact that Freddie Corbin, you know, is such a world renowned tattoo artist. I mean, the guy's been in every tattoo magazine you could possibly imagine. He's had, uh, he's had, um, um, Movies made after him. I mean, you know, he's been part of, you know, documentary films and all kinds of crazy stuff that have to do with tattoos. And it's been, it's pretty amazing. But I don't know that I want to go through the expense of having to go to San Francisco just to say that this guy redid my tattoo only to potentially not be happy with it 10 years from now and then not know what to do. So I'm debating, do I go to San Fran get this guy to redo my tattoo and come back or do I decide to have somebody else down here in South Florida or my guy that I've been going to now redo it or go over it or cover it or whatever the case may be so I'm actually going to put a poll out there on the story of calling for calling on crap beers on IG and I want you guys to that have listened to the show to decide to help me decide what I should do So I appreciate it, and I want you guys to do that. But then I have two other tattoos that were my two initial tattoos. The first one, which is on my lower left calf, it's it's actually like a panther, black panther. And um, it was a flash piece that I picked off the wall. I liked it. Everybody in my wrestling team in my high school had tattoos on on their calves, which is why I did it. And believe it or not, to this day, it's still a great tattoo. You can still see the yellow in the eyes. You can still see... You know, the the blue in the ears, you can still see the white on the teeth and the red in the mouth. I mean, it's just a very good tattoo. 
and it doesn't get a lot of sunblock put on it because my legs don't typically burn but and it is a little faded but when i put some lotion on it and give the skin a little moisturizing it you know comes back and you can see it rather well so it's actually still in really good shape but then and this was actually done by another world-renowned tattoo artist in the camden new jersey area um sailor jerry who was a huge you know just just like just a, a phenomenal tattoo person you know in the area another one that's been in all the magazines he's one of the originators you know they call him sailor jerry because he's he's literally one of the first people that generated tons of tattoo flash of his own he drew up so many pages and pages and pages of flash they for a long period of time you would walk into other people's tattoo studios and find sailor jerry's flash hanging on their walls and they were doing his tattoos his designs so super amazing you know just a great guy overall did a great job on my leg and then i also have on my left on my right arm above what i've been getting done recently i have a tribal design with some blue waves um that i got done that was my second tattoo when i was 18 years old another sailor jerry piece i have had to have the uh the tribal redone one time before to point it to make it a little bit more pointed and to kind of give it a little bit more um just uh refinement but because I did that, you can actually feel the tattoo and it's kind of raised from the skin. And, um, and at this point in time, you know, 20 plus years later, it is faded. The blue is still very vibrant, but the black is faded. There are some spots where the black is faded significantly and you can almost see that the lines aren't connected. They're not perfect. I love the tattoo and I think it symbolizes exactly what I wanted at the time, which was, you know, the beach and the ocean and God's creation and things like that, which is fantastic. So that one's another one that I'm toying with the idea of getting the black redone, like having my artist just go over the black and retouch it again, even though it is already a little bit raised, you know, just the possibility of having the black outline redone and having them leave the blue alone and just leave the blue traditionally there as it was because the blue is still so vibrant and beautiful that I don't necessarily think that needs to be touched up or redone. But there are some lines that I would like to have connected that have since they're no longer connected and, you know, things like that. So we'll see how kind of that thing goes. But I have two out of the tattoo artists that have done my tattoos. I have two iconic artists that have worked on my body, Sailor, both Sailor Jerry and Freddie Corbin out of San Francisco. And it's pretty amazing to have this artwork on my body. So it's it's frustrating, you know, because I struggle with the idea, like, do I get it covered up? Do I get an iconic piece from somebody who I could potentially never get another tattoo from covered up? Or do I choose to, you know, do something that's going to benefit me and actually look better on my body versus the faded and distorted images that I now have? Granted, as I get older, a lot of people have said the same thing. Oh, well, as you get older, they're just going to get faded and distorted anyway. And I'm like, okay, well, you're right. But right now I'm 39 years old. You know, potentially I'm hopefully plan on being on the earth for another 50 plus years. And in that instance, I'd like for my artwork to look a certain way. And it's only going to get worse if I leave it the way that it is. So definitely a, um, a debate that I have going on here because, and obviously my wife is like, just get it covered up. (laughs) She doesn't understand the significance of having these guys artwork on my body. And as far as she's concerned, she's like, don't spend, you know, thousands of dollars to fly out to San Francisco, have this guy tattoo you again, stay in a hotel, blah, 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 and come back home. Just have somebody else fix it or go over it or do whatever you want to do with it. And I get it. And that, um, you know, it, it makes sense. And 
it's tough, you know, because I don't, part of me doesn't want to lose an iconic piece, but another part of me says, why spend, you know, potentially three to $5,000 to fly out to San Fran to have this guy fix a tattoo that he did 20 plus years ago that may not, and you may not be happy with it in the long run. So I don't know. I'm definitely debating and I'm going to put a poll, like I said, out there on the story of calling all craft beer. So you guys can kind of help me out and give me an idea of what you think I should do, which I think will be pretty cool. And uh, so let's dive into just some other fun stuff. And before we do that, let me get another sip of this mm, coconut macarons. Mm. Now, I will say this. As it's coming to temperature, <clears throat> flavors are becoming more predominant. So the, the the chunkiness of it or the chewiness of it is getting more pronounced. The coconut is definitely becoming more pronounced, but also so is the booziness. As it's warming up, it is definitely getting boozier and having more of a warmth as it goes down. So uh, I'm still enjoying it, but the booziness is throwing it off a little bit taste-wise. But that's okay because I'm still enjoying it. And I'm going to try and finish it up. But this is one that I typically would like to sip and just enjoy so very good beer i'm liking it liking it so much so let's talk about i want to talk a little bit about loyalty all right so loyalty to me i've had <clears throat> i've listened to uh you know some some podcasts and some people talking about loyalty lately and it's been it's almost comical to at this point in time what loyalty means to people and what I mean by that is let's talk about what does loyalty mean to me well loyalty to me there is there is an inherent loyalty that comes with support and just respect so let me put it to you this way if you're the type of person that respects me and um treats me right takes care of me and, you know, does what you tell me you're going to do, then my loyalty does not falter in any way, shape or form. Now, if you're the type of person that promises me one thing and something else is delivered, then that gives me an opportunity that that definitely opens up an opportunity for loyalty to waver, whether that be in work or friendship or whatever the case may be. But loyalty in and of itself is in my opinion, just as trust is, it's earned. You know, the more loyal you are to me, the more loyal I am to you. And I feel like a lot of people lose that sense of understanding in the long run. And when it comes to people and jobs and work and, you know, just for instance, I have a, a good group of people that I know that are, you know, essentially working for a company and they are in a situation where they're not valued they're not appreciated. They're not made to feel like they are worth anything where they are. These people bust their butts. They make the company they work for tons of money. They bring in, they create so much awareness for the brand that it's just unmeasurable. And when you think about what these guys do and what these guys bring to the table, their value is unmeasurable. Their value is, just simply put, irreplaceable. But the company, 
believes that they're expendable. The company believes that they are, they can be replaced at the blink of an eye. And when you look at loyalty from a perspective, now the company is one of those companies that preaches loyalty. Loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. You know, we're loyal, you're loyal, let's be loyal, blah, 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 blah. But yet, the minute that one of their people begins to prosper too much, there's no more loyalty. So essentially what happens is, is that we bring you on board, you prosper, you do well, you bring us a ton of money, you make money, we make money, everybody's doing fantastic. But guess what? You're prospering too much. You're making too much. And it's making us nervous. So we're going to cut you off. Because at this point, even though you are bringing us a ton of business and you're making us a ton of money and the percentage, the profit, profit percentage far outweighs what we pay out for you, we're going to cut you off because we don't trust that you have our best interest in mind anymore. And that's frustrating because when you think about it, you know, when you, whenever you put somebody in a position, let's say a sales position where their, their job is to make sales and to generate revenue at a, on a commission basis. Okay. The more money that, and more revenue that person generates, the more money the company makes, the more money they make. That's the inherent sales, you know, procedure at any company throughout the entire world, in my opinion. You know, you, it doesn't matter if you sell insurance. It doesn't matter if you sell cars. It doesn't matter if you sell um, medical supplies. It doesn't matter. The more you sell, the more the company makes and inherently the more money you make on commission. So it doesn't make sense to me where you would have somebody who is doing an amazing job, making tons of money, bringing you tons of money. You know, let, let, let's throw numbers out there and say, let's say... I, as a salesperson, was generating, made a 10% commission on the sales that I completed, and I was bringing in an average of, you know, let's say, on, let's stay on the low end so we don't throw too big of numbers out there to freak people out, but let's say on a 10% commission basis, I bring in an average of 5000 bucks a month. I'm making $500, okay? Now, the company is consistently running specials 30%, 33%, buy one get one free, you know, deals like that. So when you think about it, when you give a 30% discount on a product <clears throat> and you pay me 10%, off the top that's 40% that you're losing off the top of the product. Okay? So at that point that only leaves 60% as potential Profit, not including cost of goods or overhead. So when you look at it from, you know, from from a bird's eye, a bird's eye view, the company in essence is screwing themselves because they're offering too big of discounts. But the company feels like they need to do that in order for the company to continue to make sales and prosper because that's the culture they've created. So 
they're in a spot where it's like, if we don't do these kind of sales, we're not going to make sales because we've gotten people so accustomed to these deals that if we don't do these deals anymore, they're not going to continue to buy. So that's the culture that's been created by the company. So at this point in time, let's say you did a 15% off deal, okay? And you pay me 10%, that's 25% off the cost, off of the the profit of the product. So essentially at that point, there's 75% left to be made, not including cost of goods and overhead. Much more profitable margins, you know, in, in, in my perspective. But the company has chosen to live in that higher or in that lower profit margin space because of the fact that they've put out so many high discounts that they're in a point now where they don't feel like they can pull back because if they do, they're going to lose money. So what they do is instead of readjusting the business plan overall, and let's say even cutting a 5% margin off and saying, okay, from now on, we're not going to do any deta- any discounts less than 20, any discounts more than 25% and regenerating that 5% margin. Instead, they start cutting their salespeople. They start cutting the people that are making them money and eliminating the salespeople, which in turn eliminates sales. Because at the end of the day, what you have to understand, what you have to remember is that nine times out of 10, customers are loyal to the salesperson, not the brand. You do, you will, every salesperson will have, you know, let's say a a 20% margin of people that love the products they buy from you. So even if you move on, they're going to continue to purchase, but that's rare. Because it's the relationships that the salesperson builds with the people that are what keep the people coming back. So chances are, it doesn't matter if you work for XYZ company or ZYA company. When you move on, especially in the same retail market or retail space, the customers are going to follow you. So what the cust- what the company is then doing is instead of removing the salesperson and maintaining the customer... They're losing an average of probably 75 to 80% of that, that salesperson's customer base by letting that salesperson go. And it just doesn't make sense. You know, it's like, why would you do, why would you, why would you potentially lose, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales over, you know, in an annual market simply because you feel like the salesperson is making too much money. You know, we sit down and, and, and think about it from a perspective like okay if you're if somebody's getting paid too much then reevaluate what you're paying them maybe lower the percentage of what the commissions that you're paying you know don't why eliminate the salesperson altogether because ultimately you're losing sales for the company because like i said people are loyal to the salesperson not necessarily the brand especially if they're in the same space and it just makes no sense you know it's like saying i've seen this in the past with with car dealerships you know, I used to work for AutoNation, which was a multi-branded, you know, vehicle manufacturer. I mean, a uh, vehicle retailer. Hang on one second. I'm going to take another sip of this. Mm. So good. Ooh, definitely getting boozier as it's getting warmer. And um, what would happen is, let's say you had, you know, Troy. Let's Let's just name somebody. You have a guy named Troy who's working over at, you know, the uh, the Dodge dealership. And he's, you know, he's he's got Mary, Joe, Sam, Ted, Frank, Ed, you know, all these people that are buying from him on a regular basis. P- 
People are salespeople loyal, not brand loyal for the most part. You will have your small percentage of people who are brand loyal that will only purchase Dodges or whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, my book of business is my book of business is my book of business. So if you transfer me to the Chevy dealership down the street, I'm going to reach out and call my people and I'm going to say, hey, you know, Ed, Frank, you know, Tony, Lisa, Beth, you know, hey, they moved me down the street. I'm now working at Chevy. You know, here's the deal. You know, I know you in the past have purchased Dodges from me. If you'd like to keep doing business with me, I'm here at the Chevy dealership. I can absolutely offer you deals on used Dodges. But if you want to buy new vehicles like you have in the past, I'm here at the Chevy dealership. Chances are their experiences and their relationship with that salesperson are going to bring them to the Chevy dealership faster than it's going to bring them back to the Dodge dealership to deal with somebody else they've never had an they've never had an experience with. And that's just the beauty of building relationships. Sales are all about building relationships. So the the stronger relationship you have with your customer, the more possibility there is that when you move on, they're going to follow you. And a lot of companies, in my opinion, I think I think fail to realize this. And what they do is in a lot of situations, they'll do like a non-compete or, you know, something like that, where they'll try to hold you in contempt or hold you responsible, you know, should a should a customer decide to follow you wherever you go. And that's at the end of the day, it's the customer's decision what they want to do. Even if I, you know, let's say, you know, I didn't, they transfer, you know, say Troy got transferred to the Nissan dealership down the street. And because of a non-compete contract with the Dodge dealership, he did not reach out to any of his people. But once he gets down there and he gets going, they start reaching out to him because they come to the Dodge dealership, realize he's not there. So they call him and they're like, hey, Troy, what's going on, man? Like, we came down here to buy some cars, but you're not here. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not supposed to tell you this because I have a non-compete contract, but they moved me down to the Nissan dealership. If that customer makes the decision that they want to go to the Nissan dealership and buy a Nissan from Troy because their personal relationship with him is stronger than their relationship with the dealership, that is absolutely 100% that customer's prerogative. And I think you'll find that a lot of sales instances, especially within the same space, that that's consistent. doesn't matter whether you're selling window coverings or you're selling vehicles, houses, it doesn't matter. When a customer develops a relationship with the salesperson, they're going to follow the salesperson before they're going to be loyal to the brand. And I feel like that a lot of brands lose that understanding or don't care because they believe that we're so good that the customer is going to stay our customer because they're not going to follow Joe Schmo because screw Joe Schmo. He's just Joe Schmo. We're the brand. And at the end of the day, that's just not the case because the customer or the, the salesperson is a person who puts the the time, the effort, and the energy into building a relationship with that customer, the brand doesn't. So, and I look at, you know, things like that in situations and, you know, it really makes me laugh because I think at the end of the day, brands spend thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars on branding and brand identification and brand awareness and da 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 and all this stuff, but it's the people who make the brand. So, When you start cutting off the head of the people who make the brand, those people start moving on. Guess what? The customers go with them. They may come back to you for one product or one specific thing that they like once in a while that you have that maybe they can't find anywhere else. But the bulk of what they purchase is going elsewhere. And that's solely based on customer 
relationships that are built by the salespeople. And I know this probably seems like to some of you guys a total rant and, you know, I mean, a total, uh, yeah, a rant, you know, and you kind of don't, probably don't understand where I'm coming from, but it's crazy. I mean, it's even, let's get into talking about breweries. You know, at the end of the day, let's say that somebody becomes friends with a brewmaster at Monkish, you know, and this guy, like, they go in, they talk to him, he discusses with them how he does certain styles of beer and what his philosophy is and how much he loves it and da 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 whatever, and they develop a keen friendship with the brewer, with the head brewer at Monkish, and next thing you know, six months later, the head brewer at Monkish ends up going down the Russian River. You don't think people are going to follow the head brewer because of the relationship they built with him? Of course they are. They're still going to like Monkish. They're still going to go pick up a four-pack once in a while when they have a crazy cam release or something like that happens. But on that Friday night, when they would normally go and sit at the bar at Monkish and just drink beer and hang out and talk to the head brewer and enjoy their time, they're going to Russian River now instead. Because it's the relationship they built with that person that's important to them, not necessarily the product that they're purchasing. And I think companies lose sight of the reality of that when they make decisions to let salespeople go and and things like that, especially when salespeople are in positive situations, you know, and it's, it's all too common that I hear the companies are, you know, letting salespeople or, you know, whatever ambassadors or whatever the case may be go because they're doing too well. You're doing too good. You're making too much money. So you know what? You're out of here. We'll figure something else out. We'll get somebody else in here. Okay. Well, You know, those 75 customers that I had, 60 of them are coming with me. And you may not even realize that right now, but they are. And at the end of the day, they try to hold you captive by saying, well, you have a non-compete. Well, it's the customer's decision. It's not mine. I'm not even going to reach out to these people. But if they find me and they come to me, that's on them. So it's kind of like food for thought when you think about, you know, just sales in general and just business in general. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all about building business is all about building relationships. Doesn't matter if you work in a hotel, you work in a bank, you work in fast food, you work in retail, you work in a brewery, it doesn't matter. Sales are all about building relationships. Business is all about building relationships. It's all about giving your customers what they want and making them feel appreciated for purchasing the product. And the ones who do that are valuable. And the ones who do that are the ones that carry that inherent value that will pull those customers from place to place. It's not about the brand at the end of the day. You know, if I walked into a, let's say a Nike outlet store and they had a phenomenal shoe salesman and this kid was just selling me shoes like crazy. And for years I had been going back to this place and getting shoes from the same kid over and over again, or guy, let's say. And to the point where when something that he knows that I like would come in, he would send me a text or give me a phone call and say, hey, Luke, I just want to let you know we got your favorite shoes came in again. You know, we have them here in your size. Do you want me to set some to the side for you? I mean, these are the type of relationships that people look for. Let's say that guy decided after 10 years of service at Nike that he's going to go down the road and work for Reebok. Well, most people are probably going to follow him to Reebok. You know, we can always find another shoe that fits, but finding a person that delivers the service that that person does is rare. And that's what separates, you know, good people from everyday people and average people. And when you think about, you know, the companies making decisions to chop 
overperforming people or successful people because they believe them to be too successful, it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's genuinely frustrating to think about it from a perspective like that where you're like, how would anybody ever cut somebody for being too successful or disconnect somebody from a program for being too successful? You know, it's just insane. <laughs> and I, I mean, because at the end of the day, like I said, we're all making money. You know, if I'm a salesperson, I'm generating a million dollars a year for a company and I'm making 10% of that. So I'm taking home $100,000. Let's say I'm taking home $100,000 in commission and $50,000 in a salary. I'm making 150 grand. I'm making you a million dollars. <laughs> you are making $850,000 of that million that I'm bringing in. And let's say, you know, even in the worst possible scenario, cost of goods is 50%. You're making $425,000 off of me. And you're paying me 150 grand. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you can't run your business around that type of model, then you're doing something incredibly wrong. So hopefully I didn't bore you guys to death with uh, my business logic and my thoughts on sales and things like that today. But I just had some situations this weekend and some things that happened this past week that kind of made me think about that and kind of put some of that down on paper and want to discuss some of that with you guys. So I appreciate you listening. Thank you so much. Episode 22 of Calling All Crap Beers. My name is Luke and I'm out of here.